Pundits and politicians have spent the day poring over the results of free by-elections, and the universal consensus appears to be that it was a pretty bad night for Rishi Sunak, but that one close race in West London offers him a very slim silver lining. Let's go through the free results, and we'll start with the biggest swings. This was the outcome in North Yorkshire, seat of Selby and Ainsty. Labour on 46%, which is up 21 points, 21 percentage points, a huge swing. The Conservatives on 34%, down 26 percentage points. So that is a massive swing. Um, Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner joined new Labour MP Keir Mather to celebrate. It's the first time we've won here. It's the first time we've overturned a 20,000 majority, the biggest majority we've ever turned over in the history of the Labour Party. Absolutely <laughs> fantastic. And because I'm always saying no complacency, it's the first time ever I've been able to say, well done, Kia. Yeah. <laughs> Kia Mader, the MP, the new MP, fantastic. We'll discuss Kia Mather later in the show. At 25 years old, his age has caused some controversy. Um, for now, though, let's move on to Somerset for the next big defeat for the government. This was in Somerton and Frome. So you can see here the Lib Dems on 55. Again, a huge swing here. Um, they have gone up by 28 percentage points. The Conservatives are down 30 percentage points on 26%. The Greens also doing pretty well, which is, I suppose, quite impressive, considering there was presumably a lot of tactical voting in that seat. Um, the Lib Dem leader joined his party's new MP, so that's Sarah Dyke, for a celebratory stunt. What you've all been waiting for. <laughs> So here we go. Let's hope it lights. Five, four, three, two, one. I found that very disappointing. I thought something, you know, a bit more animated was going to come out of uh, the canon. But I suppose you can see why the Lib Dems do it. It gets them on the television. It means people remember that they've won a by-election. They want to seem like they are a competitive party. Um, the relief for the government, though, came in Boris Johnson's old seat of Uxbridge and South Ryslip. Um, we can see here the Conservatives were down, um, down seven percentage points, but... They pipped Labour to it, 45% to Labour's 44%, winning by just around 500 votes. Um, Rishi Sunak celebrated his party's consolation prize by visiting the new Tory MP, Steve Tuckwell, in a greasy spoon. Nobody expected us to win here, but Steve's victory shows that when people are confronted with a real choice, a choice on a matter of substance as they had here, they vote Conservative. That's what the general election is going to be about. It's going to be about actual issues that make a difference to people, and that's what we deliver in the Conservative Party. And look, when we get to that general election, what people are going to see is that I and the government and the party are going to build a brighter future for their children, for their grandchildren, and that future is going to be filled with hope, it's going to be filled with optimism, and it's going to be filled with enormous pride in our country. So the issue of substance that he was talking about, that the, the election in Uxbridge and South Ryslip was fought over, was ULEZ expansion. Um, that's a Sadiq Khan policy. We'll park that for one moment because we've got a lot more on that later. Um, first, though, Aaron, 
How bad a set of results were these in, in total for Rishi Sunak? Well, they were surprisingly good, weren't they? I mean, it looked like it would be a, a blowout, a negative blowout for the, for the government. It looked like it would be two seats for Labour and one for Liberal Democrats. And in a sense, it was uh, one apiece, something for everyone. So it, it wasn't a nightmare scenario. And I think given the trajectory of the Conservative Party in recent months, given the polling, often behind by 25 points, on the Labour Party, I think winning anything is real sucker for them, and it shows that they can still win. We'll talk, I guess, about some of the specifics with regards to Uxbridge. In many ways, still a very good result for Labour. Their best ever result in this constituency previously was 40%. Last night or yesterday, this morning, it was 43%. And that was with students not being in the constituency uh, because of how term times are looking. Had students been in Uxbridge, on ballot day, they probably would have won. We probably wouldn't be talking about you, Les. So there is something there for the Tories. And what Rishi Sunak said there in his typically ebullient 1990s children's TV presenter style uh, was actually quite substantial. When they go on quasi-right-wing issues, they are going to have a chance. And I think, frankly, if the Tories want to not lose by an extraordinary amount. They probably do need to tack right, and I think they need to make sure that they, they keep a significant part of their base. One other really good bit of news for them in an evening when there wasn't much was the fact that the Reform Party are just nowhere. So this idea uh, that there is a party to their right, which could get between 7 and 10% in a bunch of seats the next general election, seems entirely implausible right now. If you look at opinion polls, you'll often see reform actually above the Green Party. That's not been borne out in any local results, and that includes the three we saw in the last 24 hours. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, the Tories doing better than expectations, there's, I suppose, a danger there in, ter in terms of sort of comparing the result with what pundits were predicting and what the parties were briefing out and sort of objectively how it compares to historical by-elections, right? So I think in the run-up to this, Labour weren't very good at expectation management. What you want to do is, is get expectations down, say, oh, we'll, we'll be lucky if we win only one of them. And then that means when you win one of them or if you win two, you can say, God, this was a massive victory. No one expected this. God, the momentum's all behind us. They kind of failed to do that this time. All the journalists sort of expected they'd win both of them. And I don't think Labour had sort of done much to try and dampen those um, hopes or I suppose those, those predictions, let's say. Um, but in this situation... If we ignore that sort of expectation management battle that happened over the last couple of weeks, these are really bad by-election results. So parking Uxbridge and South Ryslip because there was a local issue there, 20,000 majorities were overturned in two of these constituencies. So I think this was the biggest um, majority that Labour had overturned in a by-election since the Second World War. I think Keir Starmer said ever. John Curtis apparently said since one election in the 60s. I suppose it depends on how you measure it, perhaps. Um, but these were huge historic losses for a sitting government. Yeah, but you have to have lots of caveats with that. You know, this was a Labour seat. Um, I mean, there's been boundary changes, which disadvantage Labour, by the way. But this was a Labour seat, I believe, until 2010. Selby itself, which was a different constituency previously or in, until maybe the mid-2000s. We should check that. I'm pretty sure it was 2010. So you, you, know, you can come up with these numbers, um, but realistically, 
Labour would be performing well. And the reason why they didn't do the expectation management, Michael, is A, by-elections have the anti-incumbency factor anyway. Even when governments get re-elected, they tend to do quite badly in by-elections. Historically, well, for the last 10 to 15 years, the Liberal Democrats have been the primary beneficiaries of that with regards to the Tory party. Um, but also, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a strange one because... The Liberal Democrats doing so well in the Southwest matters more for Labour than the Tories keeping um, Uxbridge. That matters more for Labour in the big picture. You know, in terms of the blue wall, that is absolutely in free fall. So I, in a way I see, and I'm not being contrarian here, it is an exceptional achievement for Labour to have won the seat they did yesterday. But in terms of big macro trends, there's two things that need to happen for a big, big Labour majority. Firstly, the Tories need to do very badly in the blue wall. They appear to be doing that. Secondly, Labour needs to be doing much better in leave seats and in Scotland. Now, we didn't have a, a, a glimpse on Scotland yesterday, but what we did see with regards to um, where Keir Mather won is that a leave voting seat went back to Labour in a way that was just absolutely extraordinary. When you think that the last general election was, quote-unquote, the Brexit election, pretty fair to say that issue is dead and buried now. Um, and that continued a pattern we saw in the local elections where Labour actually, in terms of the local election results, they weren't amazing. They were very good, but they were outstanding in leave voting areas, and they were just kind of okay in remain voting areas. And actually, that, that's the kind of, that's the composition you want in terms of the, the changes. So I think you're, you're right to say that, Michael. This was a very bad night for the Tories, um, and it's, it's a good night for Labour. It's a good night for the Lib Dems. And, and I, I'm, again, this is not being contrarian, good night for the Greens. You know, for the Greens in, Sum um, in Somerton to get 10%, I know this sounds stupid, but you have to look at what happens in Suffolk in the local elections uh, earlier this year. The Greens are starting to gobble up lots of conservative votes in rural areas. And I think we'll actually see lots of seats now where the Lib Dems will unseat the Tories, but the Greens will be vying for second place with the Conservative Party. A very strange dynamic if after the next general election we have 10, 15 seats which are won by the Lib Dems and the Greens are kind of neck and neck with the Conservatives. This is in the Conservative Party heartland and they're facing tight second finishes or maybe even third. The Brexit point is interesting because, as you were saying, Selby was the Labour voting part of the constituency. That voted 60% to leave. So this was very much a, a Labour leave type place or Tory leave type place, but, you know, very heavily Brexit voting. Labour obviously destroyed there in 2019. It does seem like the Brexit divisions have, uh, you know, passed us by, which is probably to be welcomed. Um, let's go on to ULES, which does seem to be the big talking point of the day, understandably so. Um, after Labour missed out on taking back Uxbridge and South Ryslip, all eyes are on Sadiq Khan's plan to extend ULES, or the ultra-low emissions zone. Um, the plan is to extend it into outer London boroughs. This was Angela Rayner commenting on that by-election result. In 1997, when we had one of our biggest victories at that general election, we didn't win Uxbridge. So we knew it was going to be a stretch to get there. Um, and obviously there was a local issue around the ULES charge and the, and the level of scrappage for people to be able to do the right thing. And that's something we need to reflect on. But I think if you put that in the context of 13 years of conservative failure and cost of living crisis at the moment, people were just like, we cannot accept another cost on top of that without the appropriate scrappage so that they could do the right thing. I think people acknowledge 
that there is a problem and we need to have clean air. And the Conservatives were the ones that started the ULES scheme and put us on this track. But both Labour and the Conservatives now need to really reflect on that and come up with a scheme the Conservatives need to while they're in government that will help people make the right decision because this isn't just about London, this is coming to towns and cities across the whole of the United Kingdom. But it's Labour's mayor that has decided to extend the ULES scheme. Did Labour just not listen to voters on this? Well, I think Labour is listening to voters and the London mayor has been very clear and pushed the government to give more compensation so people can do the right thing. This isn't about um, giving people, you know, a charge. This is about getting um, green vehicles on the road so that we can but bring it, down the emissions in, in London charge, so that we can, we can get the health of our children in a better place. We've seen asthma and, and problems because of the emissions. We have to do that. What the Mayor of London's saying and what we're categorically saying is that we need to help people do that so that they're not penalised. And I think that's what the people of Uxbridge were saying and, and, and that was a clear message in, in this by-election. ULES, which was introduced into inner London by Boris Johnson when he was mayor, means drivers have to pay £12.50 per day if they have vehicles which don't meet low emission standards. And obviously, if they, every day they drive those vehicles. Now, it's justified as necessary to improve London's air quality, which currently has toxins well above the safe level. But it's controversial because among drivers, it will hit poorer people harder. Obviously, if you're wealthy, it's very easy to get a new car. If you're poorer, it's quite difficult. And then you get slapped with that tax. Um, and the opposition in Uxbridge and South Ryslip was so strong that even the Labour candidate spoke out against Sadiq Khan's plans. At a debate during the campaign, Danny Beals told attendees, quote, it's not the right time to extend the ULES scheme to outer London. It's just not. Um, he told the Evening Standard, um, this, so a bit more detail from Danny Beals. Something I've been saying throughout is that I don't think the support that's there goes far enough. And when you hear stories on the doorstep, we hear people who really don't face much choice about the matter. They can't afford a new car. So for them, it's do I retire early? Do I give up my job? Do I not go and visit my family? These are the decisions people are making. And I think as I meet all those people, they're all in favor of good air quality, but it needs to be done in a way that doesn't impact working people in the way that the current proposals do without a proper scrappage scheme. Um, despite the electoral setback though, Sadiq Khan is standing by his policy. Of course I'm disappointed. Uh, we didn't uh, win. Uh, I welcome the 7-8% swing to uh, Labour. I'm quite clear, though. The policy to expand the ultra-low emission zone is the right one. It was a difficult decision to take. But just like nobody would accept drinking dirty water, why accept dirty air? We know the ULIS has cleaned uh, the air in central London by almost 50%. Uh, what, what about those in outer London? And the point is, the government's given financial support to other cities in the country in their clean air zones, why not London? So he's saying the problem is the government aren't giving London enough for the scrappage schemes, the scrappage scheme to help people replace their older cars with new cars. I suppose you could probably um, put a bit of an income threshold on that. So you're supporting people on lower incomes disproportionately. But he is saying he still wants to go ahead with the expansion. Um, in next year's mayoral election, Khan will be facing the Tory candidate, Susan Hall. Um, she spoke to the media today. We've had Sadiq Khan for seven years. Everybody knows he doesn't listen to a thing that any of us want. He's, if you look for his achievements, you'd be hard pushed to find absolutely anything. And he is absolutely adamant he'll put this ULES expansion in. He should not be doing that. Londoners don't want that. He should listen to Londoners. 
Now, it's not simple enough to say Londoners don't want ULEZ expansion. So this is polling from Redfield and Wilton published just last week. Um, so expanding the ULEZ to all of London. So they say, to what extent, if at all, do you support or oppose this planned expansion of the ultra-low emissions zone? And then you can see it turns out that net support for this is plus 15%. Um, so 29% of people support it, 18% strongly support it. Um, so in total, there's a majority who support it. Now, this is the support is much higher in inner London. In inner London, the, the ULEZ um, zone already covers. Um, but even in outer London, it shows that it's even. So just as many people oppose it as support it, although, as you can see there, strong opposition is quite a lot larger than strong support. So I suppose you could say that the outer London residents on balance probably don't support this. Um, if you look at the whole of London, though, again, with a different question. So if, if a different question is asked, it makes the ULEZ expansion seem actually less popular than the data we're showing you here. Um, so uh, the same poll asked people, in your view, which would you prefer? And then they've got these options. The ultra-low emissions zone to be kept to its current inner London boundaries, and 37% of people said that was their favourite option. The ultra-low emissions zone be expanded to include the entirety of London, so that's ULEZ expansion. That got 32%. And then the ultra-low emissions zone to be scrapped entirely, that got 22%. So you can see there, um, the most popular option by far is to keep it as it is. Um, and there is a majority for either keeping it as it is or scrapping it altogether. So when the question is posed in that way, ULEZ expansion doesn't seem that popular. Um, so why is Sadiq Khan pushing for this now? Well, obviously, the argument he's making, which I think is very valid, is that this isn't about politics, this is about public health. And this is ruining children's lungs, giving people asthma, um, threatens cancer, etc. Um, so he's got a good argument there. Politically, though, why now? And I think probably here, what's worth noting is that often things such as this, sort of measures which are damaging for certain car drivers, are very, very controversial as they're being introduced. And then afterwards, the controversy dies down after people get used to it and see, oh, the world, the sky hasn't fallen down and actually, um, you know, it, it's a nicer city to live in. Um, some examples of this or some evidence for this, let's say, the implementation of the initial wave of ULEZ was controversial, just as its expansion has been, but it's not any more. Um, so this is from the same pollsters, Redfield and Wilton. Transport for London currently charges a daily £12.50 to drivers of cars, motorcycles, vans, etc, etc. To what extent, if at all, do you support or oppose the existence of the ultra-low emission zone ULEZ in London? Now, in this case, 26% strongly support it and 32% support it. Um, people who oppose it is just 10% who oppose and 14% who strongly oppose. So 24% of people oppose it and in favour of it an overwhelming majority. So once it's in place, people say, oh yeah, that's good. We should keep that. So it might be that Sadiq Khan wants to rush this through in time that people can get used to it before the next mayoral election happens. Um, as for another issue involving cars, which often seems very controversial, but apparently um, is, is not really when you ask people. Um, these are the results when it comes to low traffic neighbourhoods. Um, so what they told their respondents, low traffic neighbourhoods places bollards and other obstacles to prevent vehicles from entering certain streets in order to allow for more space for pedestrians and cyclists. And then they ask, to what extent, if at all, do you support or oppose the introduction of low traffic neighbourhoods in London? And then here the support is overwhelming. So 24% strongly support, 34% support, neither 21%. And then people who actually oppose it is tiny. So strongly oppose 
10% and oppose 7%. So only 17% of people oppose low traffic neighborhoods. Now that's despite channels such as GB News trying to make this a real hot button issue. They're not managing because once people live in low traffic neighborhoods or know of one close to them, they sort of recognize actually these things are quite good. Lots of people are discussing the idea that maybe um, this should be a warning to people sort of introducing certain kinds of green policies that can backfire. What do you make of it? Well, they can backfire. Of course they can backfire. Any policy can backfire. Uh, it's important to say that this particular initiative isn't actually being rolled out, as I understand it, Michael. I'm not a Londoner any, anymore, but it's not until August this year. And frankly, a lot of people are under the misapprehension that it will target them. As I understand it, around 9 in 10 drivers won't be impacted by this in the sort of donut surrounding central London. So um, there's that aspect to it. You know, like you said, people are more critical and, and skeptical of policies before they're rolled out. There's a misunderstanding about quite how many people are going to be hit by it. But I'd also say on the thing you said about LTNs, for instance, I think people in the abstract like cycle lanes. In the abstract, they like LTNs. In the abstract, they'll support traffic calming measures. Of course, of course they do. Often very strongly. If you have speeding cars going down your road, you'll want speed bumps and so on. That's not a left-right issue. That's just a, a you know, a, a big, big chunk of, of society supports those kinds of measures. But then when you get into the specifics, it can be quite hard. So, you know, I wouldn't say there's definitely consent out there for every LTN purely because, you know, you just showed something there around 55 to 60% of, of people strongly support or support LTNs. There's, there's different kind of initiatives. And what I would say is, here's a big takeaway from me, Michael, is that we saw a bunch of initiatives rolled out after the COVID crisis. Um, and they were embraced enthusiastically by a number of councils. And often they were done in a very half-assed way, very badly. You know, I, I, I live in Portsmouth. There was a cycle lane introduced by the Liberal Democrat-controlled council here, done very badly. It was highly ineffective. I cycle. I wouldn't want to cycle down it. Drivers were pissed off. Businesses were pissed off. Cyclists weren't getting a particularly useful asset. And what that did was, by trying to force it on people and by failing, you undermined really broader efforts to... Um, to embed and to uh, enlarge active travel. Because when you do these kinds of things, whether it's parklets, whether it's cycle lanes, whether it's LTNs, you want to do it effectively. People look at it and go, wow, that is so good. We should have more of that. A great example is the congestion charge in London under, under Ken Livingston. It was done so well that very quickly all the sort of misgivings were allayed. All the pedestrianization on the north side of Trafalgar Square. People might not know this, but Trafalgar Square used to be a, a traffic island just outside the National Gallery. Cars would go past and whatnot. And that was done so well and so impressively that people took a step back and said, you know what? I was wrong. The problem is when you don't do that, you don't just fail to implement a policy that you want to implement effectively. You also allow your opponents to um, double down. See, I was right. I knew I was right. I knew they were wrong. So people who want LTNs and active travel measures like you, like me, like most people who are progressively minded, we also need to understand that doesn't mean you back every single last LTN. Often it means actually being quite strategic and taking people with you. Now, the question is with regards to this ULES measure around um, sort of, you know, the periphery of London, have Labour taken people with them? I think the polling indicates that they've taken enough people with them. Uh, but it's it's still, you know, you're not looking at massive, massive, massive majorities. And it does raise a broader question, Michael, in regards to decarbonisation. Who bears the costs of a post-carbon city? Who should bear the costs? Should it be government? 
or should it be the individual consumer? Should it be businesses? Should it be the 1%? And I sometimes feel like measures like this, I support you, as of course I do. It's been fantastic in central London. Um, but sometimes measures like this can be counterproductive. And I can only think of, for instance, you know, the protests in regards to uh, Macron and the Gilets Jaunes and, 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 and where they came from, really. That was also about a, a sort of a green agenda initially. And um, it's not something we want to do on the left. We do not want to start a culture war around green issues. We do not want to start saying this is a left-coded thing because that's not necessarily a majority of society. Or where it is, like in places like London, it's not a super majority. So that's unwise. We need to take people with us. Yeah, no, I agree with that. We don't, we don't want climate change to be particularly polarized, actually. You know, in the United States, the reason why climate policy, well, I mean, Joe Biden's done pretty well, actually, in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act, but why no country is going to have much faith in the, the Americans when it comes to any kind of international agreement is because, yeah, on, on climate, they're doing okay now under Joe Biden. I know people are critiquing him for opening a couple of pipelines, you know, absolutely valid critiques, but also they do seem serious about climate change, right? They're investing lots of money in a green transition. But it could quite easily be the case that next year Donald Trump wins the presidency and then it's a completely different situation because there is no consensus across the parties in the United States that, that everyone's trying to get towards net zero. Now, at the moment, it's hanging by a thread, but at the moment, there is still a consensus across the political parties that we should get to net zero. They disagree on how to do it. Um, and lots of people have been critiquing Rishi Sunak, again, very justifiably, for not really putting his money where his mouth is. But the idea of getting to net zero isn't yet a politically polarized position. Again, the likes of GP News are really, really trying to change this, really, really trying to politicize um, net zero, as are the right of the Conservative Party. But we don't want that to happen. I was thinking about this the other day, actually, because I'm generally very in favor of Just Stop Oil, but obviously I'm in favor of you know what they want, and I have a lot of respect for the this idea that you put yourself in harm's way to get attention for your cause. My one concern is what if this helps to polarize the issue, which is a danger. You know, it's, it's potentially outweighed by the benefits of doing it, but a danger of the Just Stop Oil type tactics is that it, it helps polarize the issue, and then you do get a conservative party which is really anti climate action, and then we sort of just switch between two different policy positions when it comes to climate, when what you want is some sort of consensus. I'm um, sticking to this issue of Uxbridge and South Ryslip and sort of the fallout within the Labour Party. Um, apparently right-wingers in the Labour Party, of course, have found someone other than Sadiq Khan to blame for not winning in the constituency. Um, I'll give you a moment to guess who. Who do you think they might be haranguing? This time it's not Jeremy Corbyn. This is from Patrick Maguire. Anyone still hoping against hope that Labour's green policies are making it to an election intact will not be encouraged by the number of Starmer allies privately taking the name of Ed Miliband, not actually involved in Uxbridge at all, by the way, in vain this morning. So lots of people telling this Times journalist, the problem is Ed Miliband. Um, Rachel Weirmouth or Rachel Kearsmouth um, is what many people call her because she tends to be a mouthpiece for Keir Starmer and his allies in the party. She's a journalist at the New Statesman and she tweeted this. You have to ask if the job of Ed Miliband, Sadiq Khan chaired Ed Miliband's leadership campaign in 2010. Now that is a tenuous link if I ever read one. Um, so she says, you have to ask if the job of Ed Miliband as shadow climate change secretary would now be safe in any Labour reshuffle. There have been rumblings about his move for a while. I don't think the Uxbridge result will make them quieter. Um, you have to ask, don't you? This is code for I've been WhatsApped by a number of people who want me to say this. 
Um, this was an interesting take from Alan Wager, um, someone who I think is more an objective observer when it comes to Labour Party politics. Um, he's an academic at Queen Mary University. Like it or not, ULES will be seen as a parable of how radical policy popular with the left could completely derail Labour in an election campaign. Very useful for Sturmer ahead of the National Policy Forum this weekend. So the National Policy Forum where um, different bodies within the party, different representatives within the party sort of hash out uh, a basis for the next manifesto. Again, I, I, I think sometimes these things are overstated because you can get something agreed in the National Policy Forum, which is then completely ignored when it comes to writing the actual manifesto, but you know, not completely um, irrelevant. And for his part, Keir Starmer seems happy to stick the knife in publicly. He told journalists this today, we knew that ULES was an issue. That's why we lost in Uxbridge. We all need to reflect on that, including the mayor. Um, so he is pointing his finger, not very subtly, at Sadiq Khan. Now, we could say this is just Starmer's single-minded focus on electability talking, or it could be a case of tit for tat. Now, this is an Evening Standard headline from three days ago. This policy should be changed. Sadiq Khan weighs in on Labour 2 child benefit cap. Row. Um, and then you can see the subheading here. The London mayor said he will be lobbying Sir Keir Starmer to abolish the cap, but that he understands why the party leader is refusing to make the change. Um, reporting around these kinds of things, Aaron, I think it tends to just be factions within the party trying to get journalists to report what they're saying. Um, but there is obviously a lot of manoeuvring to try and say, because um, Labour have lost, well, they, haven't, they didn't win, um, South Ryslip and Uxbridge. Um, that's a reason for the party to shift to the right and dump all the green crap. What do you think? Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm sure that there's lots of people around Starmer who talk in those literal terms, Michael. You know, it's very, I, th I think people don't realise this, the extent to which the Labour Party is bought into a green agenda is very new, right? Even under the Corbyn leadership, a majority of Labour MPs were voting for an extra uh, Heathrow runway. Like, this is, this is the party. And I think a, a lot of people have this recency bias. I think the party's always been green and progressive and cares about, no, socially liberal and read it. No, 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 no. It's very possible, actually, that rhetorically, the next Labour manifesto is rhetorically less green than the Tory manifesto in 2019. Now, Keir Starmer would say, well, that's because I don't want to talk about it too much and just deliver. Fine, you can say that. But I don't think anybody saw that coming a couple of years ago. Uh, Michael, we could go through all those stories. I mean, Rachel Keir's mouth is just, that one's, you can almost see her sort of WhatsApping whoever it was, Pat McFadden or somebody from the Labour right, Wes Streeting or God knows who, Luke Akers. How should I write it? What's a good formulation? What do you think? Um, important to say, Michael, Sadiq Khan is, alongside Andy Burnham, the most successful Labour politician right now in the country, uh, as well as Mark Drakeford. He's won the mayoral election twice. Now, you might say, well, it's London, so what big deal? Labour, Labour politicians have lost that many times, both to Boris Johnson and Ken Livingstone. So the idea that you take it for granted as a sort of Labour city is somewhat misjudged. So the idea that, oh, Sadiq Khan's a loser. Keir Starmer shouldn't be associated with him. Well, hang on a second. He's, he's won a Democratic vote twice. He'll do so again uh, quite soon, one imagines. So I, I find that rather annoying, irritating, but there are lots of daggers out Fred Miliband, and frankly, I can't see him staying in that position as soon as it becomes expedient for somebody out there. You know, the GMB union hates the guy. They want him out. The Labour right want him out. So Keir Starmer will say, we lost, uh, we lost in Oxford because of ULAS, but he won't say in 2019 we lost because of my Brexit position. It's annoying. It's hypocritical. I find the man deeply unlikable. But anyway... 
that also is probably the next prime minister. What does that say about how politics works in this country, Michael? Next story. After the Tories held Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Keir Starmer wasted no time in blaming Sadiq Khan. And headlines like this could be found on basically all the news websites. So we've chosen The Guardian here. Starmer urges Khan to reflect on ULA's rules after Uxbridge defeat. Um, by all accounts, it does seem like ULA's expansion was unhelpful for Labour on Thursday. But there's a problem with Starmer's critique. He's not just disagreeing with Sadiq Khan, but also with himself from just two weeks ago. He spoke on the topic in a call-in session with Nick Ferrari on LBC. There's a legal obligation on the mayor to take measures in relation to air pollution. So he doesn't just have a free choice to decide what he does here. He's got to take action. And the first ULEZ, actually, the very first one, was introduced by a, by a Tory mayor. Um, but he's got to take action because the law says he's got to take action. I think the question then, Tony, that I would say is, how can we help you on the money side? Um, and that's where I think there's, there is a scrappage scheme in place where people get assistance to scrap and uh, so change their vehicle. It's only £2,000. And, you know, the, the, the government, Tony, has given money to Portsmouth, to Bristol and to Birmingham to help because we know it impacts on people. They haven't given a penny to London and therefore um, the mayor is asking the government to, to stump up some more money so that people like you aren't footing the bill. I know, Tony, that still hurts in a sense in your pocket, um, is, um, you know, week after week after week. Is Danny Beals right to oppose it? Look, Danny is right to um, stick up for what he hopes will be his constituents. Obviously, there's a by-election there in two weeks. So do you support the rollout on August the 29th? Look, I, I, I accept that the mayor has no choice but to go ahead because of the legal obligation on him. I think Dan is right to stick up for his constituents. And I've so you always do support found, the rollout on August 29th? I, 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 you know, I understand the pain it's going to uh, inflict. No, 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 sorry, the question was, do you support the rollout? I don't think there's an alternative, Nick. So, I mean, that wasn't exactly a glowing endorsement of the policy, was it? That was Keir Starmer saying that, that Sadiq Khan has no choice to do it because of his legal obligations. He's also saying we need more money for the scrappage scheme, so to compensate people who have to change their car. So it wasn't him saying, I love you, Les, and now saying, I hate you, Les, but it was him backing Sadiq Khan and now appearing to pretty much blame Sadiq Khan. Um, two months earlier, though, he was on the same show answering another question about ULEZ, and he sounded a bit more passionate about it this time. Um, he brought up a visit to the Francis Crick Institute in London and said this, they blew up for me an incredibly detailed photograph of a lung with very dark marks on it, which were all the air pollution from our roads, which were causing cancer in that and many other patients. It's worth us all just asking ourselves, if we are not prepared to do these sorts of schemes, what are we going to do? If increasing numbers of people and young people as well are getting cancer, I have to say, when I saw the photograph, they said there are dark areas that are lung cancer because of it, air pollution. We can't just sit that out. Um, Aaron, those are pretty inspiring words about the need for ULEZ expansion, stopping lung cancer in young people. Um, uh, what do you make of... I, mean, I suppose Keir Sun would argue it isn't a full U-turn because he's saying we need to reconsider it now that the voters have spoken out. I mean, he often says, you, you know, if you use an election, you've got to listen to the voters. You can't tell them they're wrong. I suppose, my, yeah, my first question for this, is this a U-turn from Keir Starmer? Can we call this a U-turn? It's not Keir, uh, Keir Starmer U-turning, Michael. It's Keir Starmer being Keir Starmer. You know, he's <laughs> saying, we can't just sit this one out now he's lying down for eight hours straight. So it's typical Keir, Michael. It's typical Keir. When something goes right, it's up to him. Well done, Keir. So Keir, well done. Plaudits galore. When something goes wrong, it's somebody else. And I, no, I didn't say that. What are you talking about? In opposition, it's kind of, it's working, right? In government, when you're the PM, I think there's a lot more scrutiny on you. So uh, yeah, as an approach, it's not really going to be sufficient for the top job. He is right to say that, 
air pollution has devastating public health consequences. I think about 50,000 people a year die in this country because of air pollution. It's actually one of the biggest killers worldwide, often because of the fuels that people use to cook and warm their, their homes in the global south. But the quality of air is a massive, massive killer. Um, and that's not really in the political conversation. What he said about the sort of legal obligations, however, that is partially true. That is partially true. So he said about the ULES, for instance, in Portsmouth, there you've got the local Liberal Democrat uh, council leader saying actually he doesn't support it, even though he's implemented it. Um, but he can't get rid of it because there are legal obligations that the council needs to adhere to. So th that bit is true. I'm very happy to be very critical and skeptical of Mr. Starmer. But on the legal obligations side, that is true. On the public health stuff, you know, he, he's just done the, the typical secure U-turn 180. Um, I know you can't drive like me, Aaron, but as someone who lives in Portsmouth, I mean, can you can you shed any light on this this idea that we're hearing from Labour politicians at the moment that the government were sort of happy to to give a grant to Portsmouth Council to try and fund a scrappage scheme and they haven't been willing to do the same in London? I mean, I, I suppose the, the implication when I hear that is that they kind of want to damage Sadiq Khan because he's a high-profile Labour figure, but I'm not sure if it's as, as sinister as that. I mean, has the backlash to you, Les, been strong in, in Portsmouth? Well, you, you'd have to ask my wife. She's a councillor, you know, not me. I'm not in politics. But no, not especially. Um, the, the ULES is primarily because, of course, it's a port city and you have a great um, deal of emissions coming from um, marine cargoes rather than cars. You know, we have an old banger. We're, we're not, we don't fall under the ULES charge. My dad, when he was coming in to see me, he goes, oh, you've got, oh, you know, this is, and it sort of speaks to the Uxbridge thing, right? Oh, you've got ULES. Oh, my God, what do I have to pay? Oh, I don't have to pay anything. Okay, fine. Great. What a great idea, you know? <laughs> and I'm sure that's the case for many people in Uxbridge who are, you know, up in arms, furious, voted for the Tories in the recent by-election, and the thing will come in in August, and they'll realize it doesn't affect them, and then six months later, the air's cleaner, and they'll go, hmm, it's quite a good initiative. I'll, I'll vote for Labour in the next general election. It wasn't so bad after all. So, so yes, I, 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 I think the, the Portsmouth thing is partly, which is what you're insinuating here, Michael, partly politicking and trying to isolate a, a political opponent, i.e. Sadiq Khan in London, but also air quality in places like Southampton, Portsmouth is particularly bad because of the um, marine maritime industries. I, th I think that point as well about, you know, what you said about your dad is, is why... I think Sadiq Khan, you know, because lots of people say when it comes to these anti-car policies, and they are anti-car policies, I support anti-car policies, is that they haven't done enough consultations, they haven't brought people with them. But I actually think, and I say this, you know, from, from my experience, which is of Wolfham Forest, where I'm from, and of Hackney, where I live now, actually sometimes councillors just saying, we're doing it, deal with it, um, and then sort of saying a year or two down the line, see, we were right has worked quite well. I know in Waltham Forest, you know, the, the protests they were against, it was called Mini Holland in, in Walthamstow, were huge, you know, massive protests sort of stopping the whole high street, really big popular campaign against Mini Holland. The, the council member, who is not a lefty, I think, in, in, in the CLP or the left-wingers are, are not keen on this guy, but the council member who was sort of leading on this issue was very thick-skinned when it came to these protests and just said, no, I'm doing it. Um, and fair play to him. It's now been in place for years and everyone says, oh, it's quite nice actually, isn't it? 
So, so once it happens, people are much more willing to accept it than they are to say, yes, let's do it. Um, so I, I can see the benefit on sort of pushing through these anti-car measures and then waiting to to show people the consequences instead of trying to persuade them beforehand, which I think can be difficult. That's why it's often done sort of maybe a year after an election so that people can see the results before the next one. Maybe Sadiq Khan has done this dangerously close um, to his next election. I suppose maybe he didn't want it to be in the manifesto. Um, Rob Hogg with a fiver on Super Chat says, what should have caused controversy about Keir Mava as a Labour MP isn't his age, but his background working for the CBI, so the Confederation of British Industry. We shall be discussing that in our next and final segment. After Thursday's by-elections, three new MPs will enter Parliament, and particular attention has been focused on Labour's Keir Mather, who at 25 will be the Commons' youngest member. This is how Tory MP Johnny Mercer welcomed the news. I think it's always good to get new people in, in politics. I mean, I, I think we mustn't become a sort of uh, repeat of the in-betweeners, right? So um, I think you've got to have people who've what do you mean by that? done stuff. Well, this guy has, has, you know, he's been at Oxford University more than he's been in a job. Um, he, he, he put a chip in him there and he just relates Labour lines. And the problem is people have kind of had enough of that, right? They want people who are authentic, people who've worked in that constituency, um, who, who know what life is like, understand what life is like, uh, you know, to live, work and, and, and raise a family in communities like theirs. Um, so, no, I'm afraid, I, I, you know, I, I don't agree with this style of politics. It's exactly why people like me didn't vote before the 2015 election, because you've got people with nothing to do with the constituency just dropped in and, you know, put a chip in them and they'll start parroting Labour Party politics. You Good for me, because I don't think people are going to vote for it, right? So, I mean, you know, he says there's no love for Keir Starmer. I love Keir Starmer. I think he's fantastic because people can't stand him on the doors. They don't know what he stands for and none of them are going to vote for him. So, I'm, you know, good on Keir. Let's, let's keep going. So I think there was undoubtedly a lot of cope there, right? Labour have just overturned a 20,000 vote majority in Selby and Ainsty. So it's an odd moment to suggest no one will vote for the likes of Keir Mather. No, no one will vote for the likes of Keir Starmer. I think the, the evidence doesn't necessarily agree with you, Johnny Mercer. As for whether this newly elected MP is identikit, though, um, these were the kind of answers that so infuriated Johnny Mercer. Well, obviously, this is a historic night for the Labour Party. It's the largest majority we have ever overturned. I'm so incredibly proud and privileged to be elected as Member of Parliament for Selby and Ainsley. But the hard work starts now, and I can't wait to deliver for all of those people who voted Labour for the first time, but for everyone in this constituency who deserves a fresh start. And you're going to have to back that victory up now with, with words and deeds on, on the streets of Selby and Ainsley. Absolutely, and I'm really looking forward to proving what a hard-working Labour MP can do for people in Selby and Ainsley after 13 years. We've never won the seat on these boundaries, and I just can't wait to get on with delivering an energetic and determined campaign to really improve people's lives. Are you going to be the youngest MP? Yes, and I can't wait. It's going to be fantastic. Thank you. So I think all of those answers could have been written by ChatGPT3. I mean, maybe ChatGPT2. It didn't seem particularly sophisticated. It wasn't especially inspiring. To be fair to him, of course, he's only 25, uh, probably a little bit nervous. So you don't have to give uh, a passionate, inspiring speech after you've been elected. I don't think that counted as one. Um, it does also seem um, that Mava is someone committed to towing the party line. You've uh, said that we might be on track to a Labour government. Mm -hmm. um, would you support that Labour government in its current policy of a two-child benefit cap? I support the Labour government in that policy. I think we're going to inherit an absolute economic mess from the Conservatives when we take power. We're going to have to make extremely difficult decisions once we do. And I support the Labour government in doing so 100%. Aaron, he doesn't seem particularly independently minded, but I suppose does that 
does that matter? I suppose, you know, it probably would have been helpful when Corbyn was leader if more people got elected and then, you know, in their first interview said, I back Jeremy Corbyn's policy. Of course I do. I want them to be the government. Whereas they actually ended up having a bunch of people elected in by-elections who, when they were interviewed, said, no, I'm a Labour MP, but I don't necessarily back the, the leadership. I mean, is it a problem to have... I mean, I think we probably can say identikit candidates who who seem to toe the party line. Should should we mind? You make a really good point, Michael, which is the leader has a democratic mandate in terms of their policy prescriptions and platform, and their MPs need to get behind them. Uh, and that's how you, you know, that's how our system operates in this country. Um, look, I, I think Johnny Mercy. Yes, you're right to say it was a lot of cope going on there, Michael. Um, but he's also right to say that this new MP was in Oxford for longer than they've been in the jobs market. This is really astonishing, Michael. Now, I have no aversion to young people being MPs. We've spoken many times about Mari Black, fantastic parliamentarian, but that is a real problem. And the only jobs he's had after leaving Oxford are working for West Streeting and the disgraced Confederation of British Industry, the CBI. So, it is a concern. It is a worry. And I think as an individual, you know, he hits a real sweet spot as an identical politician. I don't know the chap, Michael. Kim Mather may be a wonderful human being. He may be Britain's Martin Luther King. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> I think it's wise to generally judge people on the basis of their, um, their character and what they do and their actions rather than their words. And we've not had time to do that yet with Kim Mather. But what I would say is that, you know, He's from the constituency, but this is somebody who I think he's won partly because he's just very inoffensive, right? You know, he's not overbearing. He's not too macho. He's also clearly on it. He's clearly, um, he can actually talk and communicate, unlike the Liberal Democrat candidate in Somerton, who, could, who literally couldn't string a sentence together in one of her first interviews with The Guardian. So he's on it. He's inoffensive. He's not overbearing. Fine. That's fine. That's all good. I'm happy for him. But is that the skill set that we need in terms of A, being a tribune for people in parliament, B, being one of the 650 legislators who's best place to fix this country's problems? Generally speaking, I don't think so. That's not a comment on Keir Mather. Again, like I say, I don't know the guy. But we have a lot of MPs who have done a master in public administration, who worked for the CBI, who were a, a party staffer, we need fewer MPs like that. And to that extent, Johnny Mercer's right. And in his defense, you know, he's, he's putting his money where his mouth is, which is he's had a relatively unconventional entrance into public life and politics. You know, he didn't do a degree. He was in the military. I know this is relatively conventional for the Tory party, but he's not towed the line on a bunch of issues. Now, that raises a few points. On the one hand, we like that. We like dissent. That's good. But equally, you can't just have 60, 650 people in Parliament all disagreeing with each other all of the time because you'll accomplish nothing. That's why we have the whip system. That's why we have the party system. You need a measure of discipline and collective organization in order to solve problems democratically. So I think Johnny Merce has touched on something that's quite important sociologically and the, and the composition of parliamentarians in this country. But I think if you take his logic to its conclusion, it basically means you have a permanently chaotic sort of political system. He's clearly been influenced and infused by this idea of, of, of populism, you know, like elites shouldn't necessarily be entirely coherent and you need people who come up from the bottom and challenge that. Great, I agree with that. But, but politics can't just be that. 
politics can't just be people like him sitting back, oh, you know, looking like that Paul Whitehouse comedy sketch of an 80-year-old man, and then uh, and I was very, very drunk. That's Johnny Mercer, Johnny, Johnny Mercer in 30 years' time. Politics can't just be those people, okay? It also needs to be people who are sometimes agreeable, are will, you know, are willing to compromise, uh, and are willing to work with others who, you know, they might not agree with them on everything. So something to what he's saying, which I would very rarely say about Johnny Mercer, but equally... Uh, you know, I don't think he's put much thought into this, which is often the way with old Plymouth Johnny. Um, you mentioned there the other candidate, who, or one of the other candidates, who is one of the other new MPs, probably, um, I should say. Um, and this is the Lib Dem winner in Somerton and Froome. She's called Sarah Dyke. Um, and as you said, Aaron, she's not amazing at interviews. She gave um, this unfortunate interview to The Guardian during the election campaign. People have an idea from the outside that this is quite an affluent part of the world, right? Mm. And that's not the whole truth at all, is it? Mm. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, there is obviously that it, it does have a look of affluence um, in, in the area. I mean, it's a beautiful area. We're very, very lucky to to live in this part of the world. But there are pockets of deprivation, and um, you know, there's, there's. The... It's okay. Take your time. Locking. Take your time, don't we? Excuse me, because I'm just. Having my my coffee is don't worry. I thought I shouldn't have had the extra shots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no, it's just because I've I've drank coffee too far too quickly because I haven't had a coffee and since about seven o'clock this morning. The coffee is strong as well. Right. What do you want to know? Something is a subject that I don't know anything about. <laughs> About, about, I'm not going to be able to give you an answer for very sensibly. Or well, on, on the on the sort of general economic state of the constituency. Um. I can talk. Yeah, I mean, there's pockets of deprivation. I mean, what else? You know, what can we what can we say on that? Really, I don't feel I, I don't feel that I'm prepared at all for for this, Amy. It's all getting a little bit um, above right. above my station. Sorry. Well, you're about to stand okay. in a by-election. Yeah. You're going to get much, so much. Yeah. You're going to get much, yeah, much no. more exacting questioners than yeah. us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, this, this is day, day two of... Uh, you, of, of just, just get your glass of water. Yeah. Construct it. Right, I'm a bit thrown now, because we, we weren't, you know, we weren't here to gotcha anyone and ask particularly troubling questions, right? They were all quite open questions, but... One day after the Lib Dems campaign launch, their candidate is very shaky. And hasn't got her answers to pretty obvious things worked out. Uh, I, I mean, John Harris was right. That wasn't a very tough line of questioning. I mean, he was basically feeding her. It seems like a very wealthy constituency, doesn't it? But not everyone here is rich. He says, what else can I say? There are pockets of, there are pockets of deprivation. I, I really don't want to talk anymore. Um, Aaron, I suppose, I mean, to play devil's advocate here again, right? So what we've seen here elected is one identikit politician who's very well prepared, masters in public policy or whatever it is, um, public administration. And then you've got someone who seems less prepared. Do we have to choose between one or the other? Do we, do we either have to have sculpted MPs who have been trained very effectively or people who are a bit incompetent and don't answer questions very well? I mean... Do we, can we, are we trying to have our cake and eat it if we say we don't really want either of these things? No, no, I think that's a bit daft. Look, 
I, I criticize Kier Mather for a bunch of things, but he, he's clearly, you know, he, he can he can complete sentences. Okay. That that should be the sort of bare minimum. Again, we have to remind ourselves we have 650 people in this chamber representing 68 million of us. They should be able to complete sentences. Sounds like she was having a panic attack. I don't know, because the coffee was too strong or whatever. Just say that. But you know, the way she relayed it was just so weird, wasn't it, Michael? Yeah, there are pockets of deprivation. What else do you want to know? You're standing for parliament. He's a political journalist. He wants to know lots of things. What a crazy thing. Let's just get rid of, you know, why even have d democratic elections? Just pick somebody. They can, uh, what else? What the fuck do you want to, why, why are we even here? Why are we even having the vote? Why are we spending millions of pounds on this process? It's insane. But Michael, I think, you know, again, to our audience, to our listeners, to our viewers, many people in politics aren't very political. I know it's a really strange thing to say and hear, but it's true. Um, and especially in the sort of hyperlocal politics of the Liberal Democrat Party, lots of people are councillors. They have no politics. The Liberal Democrats are the most anti-political, apolitical party in this country. They have no politics. They just believe in like installing bollards and uh, misleading bar charts. That's what the, those are their primary political commitments. I'm being sarcastic, apart from the bollards thing. Um, and you know, eventually they get they sort of get elevated into parliament. And, and people love, the lobby love to attack the other side. So Tory journalists bash Labour MPs, Labour journalists, the Guardian, the BBC, they bash the Tories. I'll be totally honest with you, the Liberal Democrats, in terms of actual people pushing their way and actually doing stuff and having a faintest idea what they're doing in parliament, the Lib Dems the worst of the bunch. They are coasters uh, and, and they talk about lo local people, localism, precisely because it's a license to not be political, to not talk about the big problems. Uh, so this one was very much a Liberal Democrat candidate for me. I, I think it's far more likely to hear that kind of response from a Lib Dem than it is from a Tory or a Labour politician. And the reason why they get away with it, Michael, is whenever the Tories screw up, there are a bunch of seats, southwest of England, Scottish Highlands, historically certain sort of suburbs of major cities, university towns and cities, where they're just the second option, right? So if you don't like Labour, and it's time to get rid of the Labour person, well, you're not going to vote for the Tories, so you vote Lib Dem. And if it's time to get rid of the Tory person, as it was the case um, in Somerton and Frome, well, Labour aren't going to win, so I'm, I'm going to go for the Lib Dems. So you have this bizarre convergence of anti-politics. On the one hand, localism. On the, one, on the other hand, you tell Labour voters the Tories can't win here, so vote Lib Dem. You tell Tory voters Labour can't win here. Just, it's a fucking mess. The Lib Dems are the party who identify the most with electoral form and proportional representation. Ironically, they are the symbol of how dysfunctional first-past-the-post can be and just how nonsensical a third party is when you have effectively a two-party system. You know, I, I, I look at somebody like this, I listen to that interview, my God, Michael, we need PR because I really doubt under proportional representation, somebody like that becomes a member of parliament. I really think it's significantly harder. This is a really big outgrowth of how dysfunctional our electoral system is. Don't do doubt bollards, Aaron. I think as is, as is clear from my interventions on tonight's show, I'm very in favor of pedestrianization and sometimes that requires a fair few bollards. So if the Lib Dems want to put up more bollards, I'm I'm all for it. Let's wrap up there. Uh, thank you everyone for joining me tonight. Have a fantastic weekend. We will be back on Monday. Um, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. 
This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.